This morning, we are really pleased to have with us Stan Wallace. Stan has been a longtime friend, and uh, I can Stan and his wife, Lori, were with Campus Crusade in the 80s on the campus here, what was then SMS. And I can remember, I don't know, Stan, if you can remember, I remember visiting your house, your apartment, and we were talking about Francis Schaeffer. Do you remember that? I remember the conversation. And we were talking apologetics even then. Well, God has really moved Stan in that area to where now he's with Global Scholars. Uh, Stan basically does a ministry of encouraging Christian faculty at universities around the world on how they can uh, be mobilized, how they can express their faith in appropriate ways on the college campus. It's a great ministry, which he was actually a part of with InterVarsity as well, but now he's uh, um, headquartered in Kansas City. I think you're going to really enjoy I get the opportunity to hear twice his presentation on the, on the scriptures, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. He's a dear friend. He's a longtime missionary that this church has supported. So let's give him a warm welcome to CCC, okay? Yes, we were, my wife and I, Lori, my wife Lori and I were here from uh, 2000, no, 1985 to 89, so uh, we were five, and uh, as were Kevin and Janet, so we, uh, yes, uh, but uh, I, I do uh, concede that Kevin has uh, won our, our hair retention contest. Uh, he, uh, he, he beat me, I just have nothing else to say. I am, I am winning in the facial hair area, but uh, that could change, so uh, no Dear friends, good to, good to be here. Good to see everyone. Thanks so much for your support for many, many years. Encouragement, chance to be back, uh, is always something that I look forward to. Uh, I'll, I'll say just a few things about Global Scholars. I've got a table out there, some things to pick up. Feel free to take whatever, but uh, I'll speak on the inerrancy of Scripture today. But I'll say just a few words about Global Scholars to, to tell you a little more of what we do. Uh, so it is not, uh, it is not um, too much to say that those three square feet behind a university podium are the most influential pieces of real estate in a nation. Because whoever stands there influences the people who are becoming the leaders of that nation in every area, government, education, media, you name it. And what they teach is that those students learn because that's who they look to for answers It's not their pastor anymore, unfortunately not their parents anymore, it's their professors. So whatever they're taught is what they're going to embrace and take into their areas and change their nations accordingly. And the good news is that God has called and raised up men and women who love him and are called to be his ambassadors to stand in that real estate in countries around the world, from India to Iran and from... Uh, Benin to Bolivia, and from, gosh, you name it. And we meet them. We meet them around the world. And they say, help me be equipped to engage my students with the gospel, to engage my colleagues with the gospel, to integrate my, my research in my field and my publishing with the Christian worldview. Uh, if, if they're in leadership in the university, a dean, a provost, vice chancellor, what have you, help, help me lead well to bring flourishing and shalom to this place and to these people and the gospel ultimately through my leadership uh, to this place. So I get to do that every day. It's a blast. Uh, we're, um, we're seeing God's hand and uh, 
There's more on the table. I won't say more about that, but thanks for your support for many, many years to allow me to, to do this. With that said, uh, oh, I think there's a picture of my family here. I can show you my family. I like to brag. So uh, my, uh, my wife, Lori, of 33, almost 34 years, who some of you may remember if you were here back in the day. We met up at Cox Medical. And um, uh, four children. My oldest daughter is 29. She has been with the Lord for five years. Uh, my youngest daughter there, Brooke, is in St. Louis. My two youngest children are boys. They are high school students, a senior and a junior, uh, a wide receiver and a percussionist. So we have busy Friday nights, but it's a joy. So, uh, yeah, so let me talk a little bit about why we can trust the Bible. Uh, there is something going on in Kansas City, where I live, that is earth-shattering in many ways. You won't see it on the news. You won't read it in the papers. But it's going to have a far more devastating effect, I think, than most things you would read about. There's a very, very, very influential pastor in our town of one of the largest churches who has come to change his view and now is teaching a view that the Bible is just not God's word. There are, just, there are errors in it. You can't trust everything it says. He, uh, he has come to this view because Scripture's teaching on certain social issues run contrary to to, to, to the currents in our culture, and uh, he um, uh, didn't like them. Timothy warned this would happen in 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And the result is, unfortunately, for those in his church and many who listen to his podcasts and otherwise are familiar with him, they will be led into doubting whether they can trust what, what, what Scripture says, which affects the prayer life. How do you pray to trust this God who we can't trust to tell us what's true? It affects spiritual formation because what, what is it to, to grow in Christ? We don't even know. We, we don't know anything, actually. Our entire basis of authority has been eroded. And uh, so everyone ultimately, as judges says, does what is right in his or her own, her own eyes. That's a bad place to be. There are earth-shattering consequences to that, literally. So in response to this shift, I've been writing some articles to address his view and argue against it, quite frankly. And when I say argue, and I'll use the word regularly when I speak, I mean that technically. I'm trained as a philosopher, as a Christian philosopher, um, who, 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 who thinks it's important that we do argue in, 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 in the right ways. In other words, we construct arguments that have true premises and the conclusion follows from those. So I am offering some arguments that show his view is wrong, hopefully in winsome ways, hopefully in genuine ways, hopefully in ways that don't attack him as a person, and I don't. But, uh, but that, that identify where I think he's gone wrong. And so as Kevin and I were talking about what I would speak on, uh, and uh, I'm right in the middle of this series that I'm writing on. By the way, if you're interested, uh, for anything I say, there's more that I've written, and then I refer to other sources. So uh, that my website is thinkingchristianly.org. You can also get to, my, to it by my name, stanwallace.org. And uh, there you can find the current series on, on, on inerrancy. But as we were talking about what I might speak on, uh, we just sort of agreed that this, this would be helpful. Her, 
hopefully uh, to you in one of two ways. Hopefully either this might be something you're struggling with. Can I trust Scripture? I don't know. Got questions. Seem to be errors. Seem to be contradictions. A lot of people don't trust it. Uh, What what do I do? Fair question. Question you ought to ask. Uh, An answer, actually. Uh, You might also have friends, colleagues, family members, who are asking the same question that you're in conversations with, and you ought to have an answer for them too. So I'm going to try to uh, do two things today. And again, it's only a summary, but hopefully it'll be helpful at that level. I'm going to, first of all, define the, de- the, the, the term and the meaning of the, of, of the term inerrancy. What does that mean? Because there's a lot of confusion of what that does and does not mean. So I'm going to define that term. And then I'm going to give arguments for it. I'm actually going to talk about three arguments that I think are bad arguments. One that's okay, and then one that I think is really good. Okay? So that's where we're going. A little roadmap. The text that is the basis of what I'm going to say, and I'm not a theologian or a biblical exegete, so I won't spend a lot of time in the text, but it's my touch point, is, is first, or 2 Timothy 3.16. I've put four translations up for you. I'll read the first from the NIV. All Scripture is inspired by God, or is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So let's unpack what's being said there. Let's unpack what that means. When we read that, let's unpack what that entails for us as believers and anybody who's a reasonable person who really thinks about this with us. First notice that in all three, all four translations, the 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 Translator starts with the same sense, different words, same sense. All Scripture, the whole Bible, every part of Scripture. This is what's known as plenary inspiration. It's the view that that all of the text is inspired, not just some parts of the text, but all parts of the text. There's not room to pick and choose. Say, I like this part. This is good. I can live with this. People accept this, so this is what I'm going to take this part. I like that. But this part, yeah, not so much. Not not, not going to take that as God's word. That's somehow problematic. Uh, Let me give you a little more precise definition for for you. This is uh, from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. A number of theologians got together, and I want to say it's the 80s, and met in Chicago and worked on this issue and came up with, I think, a really good brief statement that essentially inerrancy is... The fact that it, all of it, is the Scripture is true and reliable in all matters it addresses, okay? Again, that whole, all of it is reliable. Or said conversely in the negative, it is free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. Or um, as, as I might say to unpack this, to give it a little more context, I'd say uh, you know, God desires to communicate truth, and, and, and not falsehoods. He chooses to do so through a written word in part. He does through, through, through his creation as well and through Jesus, the, the, the living word. But in part through a written word, he chooses as a medium. And uh, he has the power to ensure his will is accomplished. So he desires to do that. He's omnipotent, can do what he wants, gets it done. 
Thus, the result is written revelation that is inerrant, without error. That's all that word means. It also means, though, not, not, not in the sen- in s- sense of all being all the, 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 the ideas in the Scripture, but actually all of the words in Scripture. So I'm articulating what's called verbal plenary inspiration. So it's all of it, but not just all it, it in terms of the ideas, but the very words and all of those words are inspired. Uh, there are many who would say, yeah, the concepts are inspired, but the words get it wrong sometimes. And No, no, no. The argument I'm going to make is actually the very words of the text are inspired by God and inerrant. That's why in sermons often, or if, you'll, if you're reading a, a, a book that deals with spiritual things or theology, the author or pastor will, will make a, a, an argument or a case based on certain words. You know, Paul used this word here and not that word. Therefore, right, there's an implication. The, 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 the choice of that word had some meaning, had context. You know, he used agape and not phileo for his, his unconditional love as opposed to the brotherly love that might be experienced here. So that, that, that word choice is important, for instance. And Jesus says this himself. He'll make arguments that turn on specific words in, the, in the, what we call the Old Testament, his scriptures. Matthew 4 is an example of that. So that's what inerrancy is. It's verbal, plenary inspiration, and therefore all the scriptures being without error. Now, there's four things this does not mean. And so these are wrong understandings of the term that get us in trouble, either personally or if we articulate these to others. Uh, First, it doesn't mean we don't pay attention to literary devices. For instance, genres, right? Different types of literature. Uh, God communicates through many different forms of books of the Bible, right? Some are through, through... Direct statements, didactic uh, teaching, like Romans, where just this is this is how it is, just puts it out there, right? But other books are poetry, like the Psalms. Very different flow and meter and way of communicating truth. Others are wisdom literature, like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Then there are historical narratives, many of the Old Testament books. The, uh, the book of Acts that just sequence and tell us what happens. Then there's prophecy, right? Daniel, Revelation, that, that foretell things that will happen. And they're all, they're all very different types of literature. And failing to understand that can lead us to make, make, make wrong interpretations so, so that our inter- interpretation becomes errant. You understand the distinction, right? The scriptures are inerrant. Our interpretation can easily become errant or wrong. For instance, classic example. Somebody reads in Proverbs 22.6. Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they're old, they will not turn from it. Now that person doesn't understand that this is wisdom literature and takes it as if he was reading Romans, which when it says this, this is the way it is. Just this is the way it happens. But then he raises his child, and like now and then it happens, the child goes off the rails. He comes to Scripture and says, well, this is an error. Because it says, if I do this, this will happen. And it didn't happen. Therefore, this must be an error in Scripture. No, it's not an error in Scripture because it's wisdom literature, which by definition draws out 
general principles, kind of the way the world generally works. Here's, here's in, in essence, the way things tend to go, but there are exceptions. doesn't mean that that is an errant text. It's just that the genre of the literature was not taken into account in the interpretation. It also uh, involves failing to include hyperbole, metaphor, even colloquial expressions of the day. God uses all of these means to communicate truth. And, 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 you know, we know this in our general conversation. We just, we read this when people are talking to you. You know, somebody says, I saw the most magnificent sunset last night. Well, you know, it's not probably the mag- most magnificent. It, you know, if you're in Tahiti, you might see a better one. But we know what they mean, right? This was amazing. This was fabulous. This was unbelievable. So we do that naturally when we interpret what people say. Sometimes we fail to do that when we read Scripture, when it's clearly a hyperbolic statement. We, 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 we fail to see that. Uh, or, uh, well, that's enough on that. So let's go on. So that's the first problem. The first problem is uh, inerrancy. Sometimes it's taken to mean that we, that we fail to realize that there are different people writing these books. Uh, it, it doesn't mean we, take, we don't take into account their uniquenesses. Sometimes it's assumed that inerrancy means God dictated this, verbatim. <laughs> and, and there are places that that's true, the, the Ten Commandments that Moses receives, right? But most of Scripture is written through individuals who have very unique personalities, experiences, um, everything. And so, you know, you get the simplicity of Mark, compared to the sophistication of Paul as a, as a, as a scholar, uh, and, and to fail to take that into account and understand how they are writing can lead us to, in, to errant interpretations. Third, it, it, it doesn't mean that there are no transcription errors. See, inerrancy applies only to, the, only to that original document. It's called the autographa, like an autograph the thing that actually was penned by Paul. Uh, Scribes, careful as they were, could make errors in transcription. Now, about less than 1% actually uh, has questioned and perhaps transcription errors, and those are footnoted in your Bible. There'll be a little asterisk or something and a note there that these weren't, this section wasn't, or even word maybe wasn't in the the earliest manuscripts or, or whatnot. Um, and so, you know, we have to be careful because people will, will not make that distinction, and then they'll base doctrine, belief, action on a passage that's perhaps not part of the autographer, not part of the in, in, inerrant word of God. Mark 16 is a great example. Latter part of Mark 16, not in, in the earlier manuscripts. It's a part that talks about handling snakes and scorpions. Bad thing to base doctrine on. Uh, inerrancy doesn't cover that. Inerrancy covers what was in the autographer. Again, 99% we, we have, we, we construct. Lastly, this is last, it doesn't mean our interpretations can't be wrong uh, in, 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 in other ways. So we can, go, we can go off the rails in our interpretation by not applying a proper hermeneutic. That's a fancy word, just means principle of interpretation. Okay? And we do this all the time. In fact, I want to suggest that the hermeneutic we should use with Scripture is the one we use for all other literature. 
And the Bible is, is, is literature. It's divinely inspired literature, but nonetheless, it is literature. So how do we read any literature? Let's figure that out, and let's apply those principles to interpret that correctly to the Bible. Well, let me start just start off with an example. Let's say you pick up, you go to the library, you get an old archive of the 1895 edition of the Paris newspaper. So you're reading this. Let's say you know French. So you're just reading this, and it's talking about a fire the night before. Okay? So as, you, as, you, uh, as you're reading through this, you're applying a lot of principles to interpret what you're, what you're reading. You're determining what the words mean. You know some French, so you have most of that, but you might have to look a few up. It's important to get the very, you know, very specifically the words clear, what, what, what's being said. Uh, and, and, and also, maybe that word means something different to them than it does to you. So you're, you're saying, okay, yeah, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 whatever they'd call it, the, the fire department went and, and put out the fire, and you know, you're thinking about the fire truck, and of course, they, that's not how they hear it. They're thinking of horses, and whatever it is, you're, you're saying, okay, I've got to be careful to think about what I'm reading in what the original hearers would be interpreting it to mean, not what I interpret it to mean in my day and age, right? And uh, you'd, of course, read it in context. You'd read it, what, what, what's the broader uh, story about, what, what section of the paper is it in? You'd realize it is a newspaper, so it's an event that, that actually happened. It's a historical narrative, not, not a fiction account. So all those things you're doing, and you come to the, the, the right interpretation of that story. It's just common sense stuff, right? Well, that's called a grammatico-historical hermeneutic. It takes into account the grammar, the words used, and the historical context, what those meant to the original hearers. Those are critically important. And often when we read Scripture, we go, we go, we go wrong on this. So either we, we don't understand what the word meant just, just in general, because it was in Greek and in, it's translated in English, and you know, we maybe don't understand that word, or like propitiation might be a word. It's like, I don't even know what that word means. So we have to do our study and look that up. Uh, or we don't know what it meant to the original hearers. You know, we, we read uh, in um, Proverbs, uh, I forgot the passage, that, that without vision, the people perish. And we think it means, you know, kind of our corporate vision, like we have, right? Or our ministry vision. Here's what we want to see happen. That's not what the original hearers understood that to mean. They understood that to mean a prophet. Without a prophet speaking God's truth, we perish. We need to hear God's truth spoken through his chosen messengers. So you can understand the words and what they meant to the original hearers, just like we do in the, the Parisian newspaper. So that's what inerrancy is. Those are some of the ways we can go wrong and get an errant interpretation out of an inerrant word. Uh, for the rest of our time, I want to talk about why we should believe that's even true. Because we can have a great definition of it, good illustrations, but at the end of the day, it's just not something that we ought to believe. It just doesn't make sense. So we shouldn't believe in errancy. We should follow this pastor in Kansas City down another path. So let me give you three arguments that are given for inerrancy that I don't think are good ones first. The first one is that, well, the Bible says so. 
maybe you've heard it this way. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Right? That's my argument. Or, well, the Bible's God's word. It can be trusted. And it, and it says clearly that it's inspired. So, uh, so that, uh, that, that's, that's, the right, that's the right belief to have. Right? This is the argument. Well, it's sometimes easier to get clear on where an argument goes wrong if you can put it into a, 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 a logical form called a syllogism. What are the premises that are being assumed here, and does the conclusion actually follow from those premises? So let's, let's formalize this in that way. So the first premise would be the Bible is from God and therefore contains no errors. Second premise, the Bible states it contains no errors. Therefore, conclusion, the Bible contains no errors. Now, you can probably see what the problem is by looking at that, right? It smuggles the conclusion up into the first premise. Now, if you start with that first premise, well, sure you get that conclusion, because you already started assuming it. That isn't right. It's actually a logical error known as begging the question or petitio percipi, that you, you, you assume what you're trying to prove, and then lo and behold, wow, we proved it. That's dirty pool. You can't do that. You can't do that. So that's a bad argument. It's arguing in a circle, and it's out of, it's, it's out of court. Eh. Number two. Well, the Bible doesn't need our defense. Uh, reasoning might go like this. The Bible uh, doesn't need me or anybody else to come to its aid, uh, it, it, it is what it is. It's from God, and we need to recognize that and humble ourselves to that fact, that reality. And in fact, to make an argument is to put man's logic above God's logic and elevate ourselves above God even. And we ought not do that. So that's, that's the argument. And that's actually not quite an argument. It's actually an argument that there is no argument, right? It's giving reasons why one ought not to give reasons, and there's two errors at least here that we need to be aware of. One, it's simply false, that the Bible doesn't need our defense. This is precisely what skeptics are asking for. They're saying, I don't believe this is God's word. Why should I believe it? Are there good reasons to believe that? They're asking us for that. So it's just false that it doesn't need that in the sense of, of this is what is being talked about. No, this is just exactly what's being talked about. And more importantly, or equally importantly, we're commanded to, to give an answer. We are commanded in 1 Peter 3.15 to always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us for the hope that's within us. Part of our hope is based on the word of God being his inerrant word. We need to be able to give an answer to those people who ask us. So it's just false that, uh, first of all, people uh, don't need an answer. Secondly, if we decide to bifurcate human reason and divine Reason, God's reason, human reason, we're sunk. We are sunk as a people of God. And I'll tell you why. All the way through Scripture, for instance, every statement is a statement that, that, that we use logic to understand. So we read John 3.16, and it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And so we use human logic and a specifically a law called the law of non-contradiction, a law of logic, that says two opposite things can't both be true. So we read that and we say, oh, okay, so God does not hate the world. 
He loves the world. His hate and love are opposite things. Wow, that says something to me. That's good for my soul. I can pray to this God, the God who loves the world. But if that's just human logic and it's different than God's logic, how do we know his logic isn't the opposite? Maybe in his logic, love and hate are the same thing. So he really hates the world. Well, now all that confidence is gone because his logic is different than ours. And so we think love means love, but really it means hate. So all of our assurance of what Scripture says, what we know about God, what we know about how we know God is all evaporating the minute we say God's logic is somehow different than our logic. It's a dangerous place to be. You see, logic is logic. Logic is essentially the thoughts of God and the way God thinks that he has given us as a gift as created in his image. So we can think his thoughts after him. So we can know truth that he knows and ultimately is. And actually that we can therefore have a common ground with others who don't believe in him. They still are created in the image of God, still have this ability to think logically according to the structures of God's mind to see this leads to this leads to this conclusion. So it gives us a place of dialogue. So we do not want to go there. It will emaciate every aspect of our faith and witness. Third bad argument. There are no contradictions in Scripture. Therefore, because there's no contradictions, it must be inerrant. It must be inspired. It must be of God. Now, first of all, let me say I agree that there are no contradictions. Okay? But I think it's a bad argument in favor of inerrancy. You understand the distinction, right? One can believe something without it being the reason why they believe it. So I do believe that's true, but I, I don't think that's the reason we, we, we use to, to, to argue for inerrancy. And let me tell you why. If this is the basis of our belief for inerrancy, then any time we run into a, an apparent contradiction, then we've got to suspend our belief and not be an inerrantist. Say, okay, now I've got to back off that belief in inerrancy because my foundation's gone. I read this passage that seems to contradict with this one. I never kind of noticed that before. So now I've got to back off my belief because the foundation's gone. I've got to go to work on that. And, and, and maybe a, you know, a day, an hour later, a day later, a month later, a year later, a decade later, I figure it out. Now I can believe in inerrancy again. Oh, but I, I see another one I'm not sure about. Or an archaeological discovery seems to call into question something that's in Scripture. And so we're, we're always vacillating. It's almost schizophrenic if our basis for inerrancy has no contradictions. Let me give you a, a fourth argument given for inerrancy that I think is okay. This is not the best one. And that is uh, that there is a continuity in Scripture. The Scriptures are written over 1,500 years, written by authors from so many different walks of life in different states from deep sorrow to great joy, written in different cultural contexts, and yet throughout there's a continuity. There's a, 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 a thread that runs through it, the story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, all the way through. And, and, and you've got to make sense of that fact. And it's an argument in the form of inference to the best explanation. It's what's done in science, um, where you have data points, and from that you infer the best explanation. It's fair. It's, it's a rational way to approach a, a question. Uh, and the best explanation probably is, arguably, uh, most reasonably, that the, 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 the author is one author, namely God, who used 
the human authors to write scripture. So that, I think it's a decent argument. I don't think it's the best. The best is what I call the inductive argument for inerrancy. And the reason it's best is it starts with something that's, that, that's, that's very defensible uh, based on common ground with a non-believer. Uh, so it doesn't make the error of, of, of assuming something they don't assume, of begging the question. Uh, it's, it's a rigorous argument. It is uh, one that, uh, that we, we, we can have uh, dialogue with non-believers in, in in reasonable ways, and they can actually see it. They can say, yeah, that makes sense. I understand that. I agree. So it's just, it's just a, a really good way to approach the topic, I think. And it, it actually gives us a reason to believe in inerrancy, even if we hit a, an apparent contradiction. We don't have to suspend our belief in inerrancy until we figure that out. Let me go through this very briefly. Again, uh, I am in the middle of elucidating these in my articles I post on my website. So if you are interested, you can drill down there, and I refer to some other sources in each of those. We can take the next pass at it at a deeper level. But in a, in a, in a cursory way, let me offer this argument, argued by people like uh, the late uh, John Stott and John Work Montgomery and others. First, the four Gospels are historically accurate documents. They basically tell us what happened? Now, it's not a circular argument, and it's not, a, it's not assuming they're inerrant or inspired by God. It's just assuming they are, it's just, it's just claiming they are what they, they say they are, historical narratives, which could be falsified or proven. Okay? Like any document that says it's, a, it's an account of what happened, you can verify or falsify such a claim. And the good news is professional historians... Uh, have methods to do this because they've got the same question about Caesar's Gallic Wars or, or, or the writings of Thucydides or whoever it is. They've got to say, well, this claims to be history. Is it history or not? So they've developed actually three tests to determine the historicity of especially works of antiquity. And when the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are put to those tests, they pass with flying colors. So much so that if you would say, no, these aren't good history. We're going to throw out Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as history. You have to throw out everything else we have in, 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 in the, the, the world of antiquity. We can't say we know anything Aristotle wrote or Plato wrote or um, Pliny the Younger wrote or anybody. Now, no historian, no classicist is going to allow that. Say, no, we've got good reasons. We're going to, we're going to hold on to our Aristotle. <laughs> but now we've got to hold on to our New Testament Authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John also. So that's the first premise, that the four Gospels are historically accurate. Second, the central figure in those narratives, Jesus of Nazareth, claimed to be and proved to be God in the flesh. Again, we've got these as historical narratives now, so we can actually know what happened. Well, uh, what, what does the central figure do? He makes direct, direct claims to deity. Before Abraham was born, I am, John eight fifty eight. Right? Not I was, because that itself is a temporal statement, but I am. I'm not, I'm not, it's not I was, I am, I will be. No, I'm, I just am. I just have being is what he's saying, eternal being. I've always existed. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Okay? Pretty direct claim to Deity. It's the same word uh, used, for, at least in Septuagint, Septuagint uh, in, in, in Moses' encounter with, Jesus, with um, God at the burning bush. Who are you? I am that I am. 
He's claiming to be that very same being. John 10, 30. I and the Father, I and the Father are one. Now, here's an important uh, place that our hermeneutic comes in. A lot of people say, well, he meant one in, 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 in mission. They're about the same thing. They, they, they have the same purpose. You know, I and my colleagues are one in that sense. We're all about the same thing. No, actually not. <laughs> uh, actually, the, the word used is a word, again, a, a Greek word that's very clear. It's one in essence. It's one in its very being. And the way the first hearers respond confirms that. They don't say, oh, I'm glad you have the same purpose as a father. No, they pick up stones to stone him because he's claiming to be God, <laughs> right? So there's these really direct claims that he's making claims to deity, and then indirect claims, like in Mark 2.5, uh, he, he, he says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And what do the teachers of the law say? Boy, who can forgive sin but God alone? Wow, this guy's blasphemous, Right? So he's doing these kind of things that only God does, like forgive sin. So it's clear that he is making claims to be God. Uh, he's proving these through fulfilled prophecy, through uh, resurrection, the greatest sign. Again, that could be a whole conversation in and of itself, but really good evidence for that. I've written on that as well if you're interested. Uh, so that's the second premise. Third premise that as God, Jesus would not lie or mislead. That's, that's what it is to be God, to be holy, perfect, uh, I'm going to just scoot through these, but, um, but that, it's, a, it's a logical corollary. Here's the nature of God. Uh, if a God exists, and do not even assume one does, but if a God exists, it would be a fully or maximally perfect being. Part of maximal perfection is truth-telling, and so uh, that would be a, a characteristic of Jesus if, if he's actually God as he claims to be. So all he says is true. Fourth, he says the Old Testament is inspired by God and assumed its inerrancy. He makes claims uh, all the time about the scriptures say, have you not heard it's written, uh, makes arguments based on specific words in the Old Testament. So his view is that the Old Testament is the inspired and errant word of God. And then he claims that the New Testament would be written by the apostles and therefore validates that what they write will be the inspired and errant word of God too. Uh, John 14 and John 16 he gives a very specific promise to the apostles. Sometimes we take it for ourselves. We've got to be careful in context. Who is being promised what? The apostles are being promised that when the Spirit comes, he will lead them into all truth and remind them of everything Jesus said. And then actually a little later, John 17, 20, uh, he is praying for, the, for us, for the entire church. And he prays that we would believe in Christ on the basis of the words of the apostles. So this was the test for canonicity, what, what got in our Bibles. Was it written by an apostle? If it was written by an apostle or an apostle scribe under his authority, it made it in the canon. That's why we have the books in the canon we do. That's why we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for instance. Uh, that's why we don't have the gospel according to Thomas, the Gnostic gospel. Well, it wasn't written by Thomas. Um, so, so that's how we got the canon. That's why Paul in a number of his letters, has to argue that he is also an apostle. Somebody untimely born, not one of the 12, but still an apostle Jesus commissioned in the same way. Galatians 1, right? Okay. And therefore his letter should be taken as authoritative as Holy Scripture. Peter confirms, yes, in fact, uh, Paul is writing Scripture. He is an apostle. 
So conclusion. We therefore, based on these premises, all being true, conclusion follows that we have good reason to believe the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are inerrant. I think it's a strong argument. Again, a lot more can be said, a lot more detail, a lot more nuance. I, I try to raise objections to each of these premises in, in what I'm writing, and those are important to drill into, but that's the conclusion. follows logically from the premises. So let me sum up. I'm out of time. I don't know if my articles uh, will influence this pastor in Kansas City. I know he, he's read some things I've written. I don't, I don't know. May or may not. Uh, I hope they influence you. I hope what I've said is helpful to you. Whether you're on your journey raising these questions and asking what, you're, you know, what, what should I believe about the Bible, fair question. Hope it helps you if you're in that place. Uh, or if you're talking to others, friends, colleagues, uh, relatives, uh, it's helpful to them as well. So thanks for a few minutes. Blessings to you, and uh, thanks be to God. Thank you, Stan. I think it'd be appropriate if we had a time of maybe some Q&A. If any of you had questions that you wanted to ask Stan about the topic today, um, he'd be happy to answer a couple of those. We've got just a couple minutes. So anybody have anything? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. Everybody hear the question? Do we have enough data to validate Paul's claim to be an apostle? Is that essentially? Yeah. So briefly, briefly two things. Uh, there were certain conditions that had to be met to be an apostle. Uh, and the most important condition was that Jesus said, I apostle, oh, I'm going to get the Greek wrong, apostolize you essentially. It was a verb of an apostle as a noun. So I, I commission you as an apostle. And that's the recording we have in Acts, which is written by Luke, again, sequel to, to his gospel, uh, that, uh, that, that Jesus actually uh, apostolizes him as well. So it gets, gets back to the historicity of, of, of Acts, which I think there's good reason to believe Acts is a good historical record. It records Jesus directly uh, apostolizing Paul. And then, perhaps most importantly, the, the, the apostles themselves accepted him as one of their own. So they knew that they had been, this special commissioning. It's like being a prophet in the Old Testament. You are uniquely uh, chosen and authorized to speak for God. And it's a very high honor. It's a very sacred charge that you don't take lightly. And others certainly don't take that on if they aren't uh, commissioned by God to do that. So the other apostles who had this commissioning say, hey, you need to read Paul's letters. Peter says this says this, because, um, because what he's saying is, is God's word. Third, by the way, uh, he does go, after the road to Damascus conversion, he has, I believe it's either 13 or 16 years. I think it's 16 years where he's sort of out of the, he's just gone. And then he goes to Jerusalem, and he spends uh, about three months with the apostles. And, 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 and the record says, that they had nothing to add to him. Basically, 
he knew, he knew as much as they did, having been with Jesus for three years, uh, him not having any background, but now he knows all the same things they knew. So somehow he learned that. There's nowhere else you can learn that because it's not written anywhere. He learned that by direct teaching from Jesus, arguably, or else he just guessed it all right, <laughs> which is hard to believe. So those are some of the reasons that uh, Paul was accepted by the apostles as one of, one of their own. Is it helpful? Okay, thanks. Anybody else? No, great question. I, I, I think you've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. It's, it's a great example of hyperbole. And, and the question I'd ask to, to, you know, to make sure I'm right on that is, how did the first hearers understand this? Because certainly his disciples, for instance, had the same issues we have. Were they blind? Uh, and did they have no hands? No, because they wrote things. And so they didn't interpret that as a, a, a literal didactic teaching. They interpreted that hyperbolically. And so that's a, a, a reason that we ought to interpret it the same way as well. Um, to, as I, all hyperbole does, to say, hey, this is really important stuff. You know, there, 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 there's very little as, 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 as grand and, and important as this I'm going to tell you. Yeah, great question. So, uh, so the, the, that council was the council that sort of put their stamp of approval on this canon, but the canon had existed before that. The book started to circulate, parts of the book, and then actually parts, some books in a compilation, and then the whole set much before that. You can trace that back to early second century. So there, there was very little question uh, among the early church, what was and was not in the canon. There were some that were questionable, like James was questionable for a long time. Uh, and, and, and the question was, yes, is it, you know, ultimately, is this written by an apostle? So it's really just historical research to say, is this written by an apostle or a, an imposter of a, an apostle? So uh, it, the, 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 the full New Testament canon was then in circulation by late second century uh, and then in Antioch, of course, there was this, this sort of blessing or stamp of approval. But that's not when it came to be. Okay. That, that's important to keep in mind the timeline. It's a good question, though. Yes. Yeah, so, so good question. Two, two, two issues. First, the continuity, yes, but that's a separate issue. That's not uh, argument. That's not this argument. 
I, I just don't think it's strongest because it's not quite as rigorous. In other words, it's an inference, the best explanation, but there could be other inferences, and then, you know, it's, it's more of a probability calculus. It's fine. You can go that way, uh, but I, I, I prefer this argument, which is, which is a little more rigorous. Uh, your second point, I think prophecy comes into that second premise that Jesus proved he was God per historical record of how he fulfilled prophecy. Your head. Yes, again, it, logically speaking, it's, it, it, it's an argument form called inference to the best explanation, and it's what, it's what science, scientific inquiry is based on, right? So you've always got data sets, and from that, you have to decide what's the probability that my conclusion follows from that. So we do it all the time, uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's an art and a science that I think we, in, in our day and age, have honed well in... The sciences, so uh, so we are not only justified; we really are beholden to to use that. It's a way to find truth. As long as, and here we can get into a lot of things that are important, and I've written on them, but I can't drill down. But as long as we realize that probability can give us knowledge, okay? So we can say uh, we've run this experiment hundred times, ninety times. X happened and 10 times Y happened. So we can know that, whatever the conclusion is, okay? We can have knowledge. Now, uh, the same is true of, of probability arguments for theistic belief. We've got a data set. It's strong enough, even though there are some countervailing evidences, perhaps. But 90% goes this way. We can know this is true. God exists. The Bible is God's, Bible's God's word. Jesus raised from the, the dead. Whatever it is without having 100% proof. Now, people will say, well, couldn't you be wrong about that? Or can you prove that 100%? We say no. And they'll say, well, you can't really know it. No, I can know it. The same way I can know things from science, even though that's never 100%. There's this assumption of what's called Cartesian certainty. It comes from Descartes, Enlightenment thinker, who basically said you can't say you know anything until you get 100% on it. Well, we can't know most of anything. I, even the fact that you're here and that I'm here. We all could be brains in a vat, but we're not. We know we're not. But we could be, isn't it possible? Yes, possible, but we're looking at what's most probable, okay? So that's a huge issue uh, that comes up all the time, and I've written a lot on that if you're interested. Okay. I'm going to defer to you. Yes. Yes. I'm writing on those right now. I just finished the first one. Um, no, I finished, I finished maybe all of them. I've got them all kind of lined up to post. Yeah, so it's a bibliographic test. How many copies of the original do we have and how close is the first copy to the original? It's the internal evidence test. Do the, uh, the, the, the things internally in the document make sense uh, with one another or are they, are they contradictory and external? What are external documents of the time saying? Do they say contradictory things?
Yes. So uh, it's it's conceptual analysis. The best way to say it's conceptual analysis of the concept of God. That 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 an atheist or a theist, no matter what their their personal beliefs would be, would say this this would be the definition. In other words, God is by definition. Now, this doesn't assume God exists. So an atheist could say this. But God, by definition, is the greatest possible being or a maximally perfect being. God would be that being that has any, any attribute that could be had to the fullest reality. Okay? Because if it had less, then it would be not, not what we mean by God. Now, again, atheists might say, I don't believe such a being exists. But if such a being exists, this is what it would be. And it forms part of what's called the ontological argument for God's existence, which some think works, some don't. Tuesdays and Thursdays, I like it. Other days, not so sure. So, um, but it's that idea. And it's, and it's a logical construct and sort of a natural corollary from what God is that he would be maximally perfect, including in, in, in honesty. So, and, and people could fuss at that. That's, I think, the next one I'm going to be writing on the next one, so I'll unpack that more. But, yeah, it's a good, good question. Yeah, yeah, John 14 and John 16. And then, uh, uh, was that yours? That's why I couldn't find anything on it. Uh, and then the high priestly prayer of John seventeen twenty, I think it is. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Yes. The apocryphal texts, yes. A great question. So, so everybody understand the question, right? So, there was um, a scholar named Jerome, who, and I'm terrible in history, so you have to give me two or three hundred years usually. But I'm going to say, maybe no, nine hundred thousand, roughly, and. Um, and he decided that the scriptures needed to be translated into the common language so that people could read it who don't know the scholarly Greek and Hebrew. Well, the, the common tongue was Latin, okay? So he translated it into Latin, the scriptures into Latin. It was known as the Vulgate, because that was the vulgar or the common tongue, right? And in it, he added some other books that were being circulated and read that weren't, that weren't seen as scripture, they didn't meet the bar to make it into the canon. I think there are 12 of them, uh, like First and Second Maccabees. Uh, but he put them as sort of an addenda. Hey, here, here's some good books to read also. Uh, it's sort of like we'd have commentaries maybe now. So they were, they were in the Vulgate, but clearly demarcated from the text of Scripture, but helpful things to have with you. But they, they, they in, in addition to having helpful things, had some kind of interesting and odd things in them, uh, and they had a number of places where Mary was exalted significantly. Well, fast forward two, three, four hundred years to the Protestant Reformation, and the Protestant Reformation, again, sola fide, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and uh, swept Europe, and so Catholic scholars met together in Trent, uh, which is a city in Italy, and had a council called the Council of Trent. 
and they produced a, a document basically saying, no, here's our response to the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation's core document. And in it, they affirmed that these apocryphal, apocryphal books were part of Holy Scripture. So that's when they got added into the, the Catholic Bible, but not the Protestant Bible. Make sense? Okay. We're out of time. Okay. Thank you. This is great. Let's give Appreciate it. Wasn't it wonderful?